The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Monday, June 4th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know what? The economy is doing well. We have 3.8% unemployment. We also have, to tell us the economy is doing well, Newt Gingrich. He's here, or was there, on ABC's This Week. But But if you're a normal American... And you're looking at continued economic growth. You're looking at uh, a system that you think is working. Uh, and you say, oh, but over here is something that's, that's obscure and legal. Uh, I think that what Trump, look, I think the Republicans, if they're clever, are going to campaign on the economy working, which, in fact, is exactly what Bill Clinton did in 98. And it worked. I mean, the fact was people said in 98. But what Newt and the Republican-aligned media did tell us back in 2016 was that the economy was in shambles. So here he was on Fox Business in the summer of 2016, and at the end you'll hear host Maria Bartiromo, yes and him, and his answer. But that underlying weakness of the American economy is going to be an anchor that Hillary can't carry very far if it continues uh, to be as bad as this last month. Yeah, especially since she's saying she wants to build on Obamacare, she wants to build on Dodd-Frank, all of the reasons that businesses are not hiring. But businesses were hiring. They're hiring now a little bit more than they were then, but at the time of that interview we just heard with the dire, dire predictions of how Dodd-Frank and the Affordable Care Act was depressing hiring. Hiring was going pretty well. Unemployment rate, the most recent unemployment rate that was announced was 4.7%. Now it is 3.8%. But I have to tell you, the difference between 4.7 and 3.8 is, well, it is 0.9. Free math there. But the difference between those rates is not bad economy and good economy. It is improving economy and improving even more economy. By the time the election was held, the economy was actually good, just flat out good. It had been good and out of recession for a long time. And job growth was, is, and has been on an upward trajectory. Obviously, if you invite an ideologically driven commentator on your program, as ABC's This Week did, you will get some ideologically driven commentary. I get that. And, you know, Bill Clinton won in 92 by telling Americans it's the economy, stupid, while the economy was clearly improving. It was improving under his feet, but he convinced people it was bad and he could fix it. And he benefited from the fixes that were probably going on already. But my point is the difference between 4.7 unemployment and 3.8% unemployment cannot explain what the pundits told you that the people were feeling, that the average voter now is rosy and was apoplectic then. After the election, we were told, you know, we have to look within because a lot of Americans are really hurting out there and the pain's not being picked up in the numbers. And how dare you think that things are going okay? Things are not okay. People have given up hope. There is desperation in the heartland. And that desperation is 0.9% higher than today. That is the definition of desperation. Or let's look at total jobs. So this is 2018. In the five months that are fully registered in 2018, the U.S. economy has added 1.037 million jobs. But in those desperate, searching for a solution, even casting your lot with a demagogue, such was the desperation in those dark days of 2016, in the five months leading up to that election, the U.S. economy had added 1.189 million jobs. That's more. Those five months were better than these five months. 
It makes no sense. Well, it makes perfect sense in terms of how people feel progress and how people process progress and how one party consistently shit-talking the economy can really shape people's opinion of the economy. Anyway, that was my takeaway from one sentence pretty much on one Sunday show. And in the spiel, I will bring you another highlight from a different Sunday show. Here's a preview. Uh, I want to talk about (laughs) pardons in general. Okay, that was gross. That was Rudy Giuliani clearing his throat. And we will have more of that in the spiel. But first, Richard O. Prum. That O is a middle initial, not a a Gaelic uh, prefix. So Richard Prum is an expert on ornithology and the meaning of beauty. And I will tell you, you may like his defense of Darwin, but others will say this interview is for the discerning layman. When you see a guy look for stars in the sky, you could bet that he's doing it for some doll, so the evolutionary biologists would tell you that maybe that guy has a flashy ring, or if that guy were a certain species of, I don't know, macaw, the plumage at play would be because of evolution and mate selection. Richard Oprum, with his book, The Evolution of Beauty, is uh, tweaking some of what we thought, and the tweak actually goes back to the man himself. The subtitle is How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and us. Hello, Dr. Prom. How are you? Great. Great to be here. You are going back to Darwin's original theories of mate selection, which fell into disfavor among his followers and acolytes, the Darwinists, but it fell into disfavor. And you're saying maybe there was something there. Maybe he was onto something about why the peahen gets all aroused by the peacock. Yeah, this is a... Uh a remaking or a, or a reconfiguration of how uh, we think about the evolution of beauty in nature. Yes. And Darwin's idea was that maybe the peahen just likes it because she likes it, but that became unacceptable to think that. Yeah, Darwin really proposed that it was because of pleasure. Yeah. The pleasure that the chooser gains by observing and evaluating ornament in nature that really drives the evolution of beauty so that animals are making free choices based on their subjective experiences, based on what they like. And this was really a threat to the early evolutionists and is still a threat to many biologists today. So in the Victorian time, if you talked about things like free choice and female pleasure, the Victorians who were open to Darwin to some degree, they didn't like that. So they'd have to find a way to argue against it. Absolutely. And one, actually, one of the, his main, Darwin's main antagonists was Alfred Russell Wallace. Yeah. Who was the co-discoverer of uh, the idea of adaptation by natural selection. But Wallace is, was actually personally a creationist when it came to humans. He thought that humans were specially created by God and that there was a big gap between people and nature. He envisioned that birds were like wind-up toys, just going through the motion. So the idea that they could make choices based on aesthetic experiences was really outrageous to him. Right. So if we could interrogate the peahen, I sometimes think the female peacock, no, the peahen, and we were to say, hey, why why you like that plumage? 
Wallace would say there'd be some answer like, well, the plumage means that he's a healthy mate, and the healthy mate is who I want to select. So it becomes a stand-in or a symbol, right? And Darwin would say, the peahen would just say something like, look at that plumage. (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, the, the, the idea is Wallace wanted to unify everything under adaptation by natural selection. So in that sense, the only way beauty could evolve is if it stood for actual objective improvement. It meant something other than yeah, beauty. So, it meant so, something other than aesthetics. So beauty would mean better genes, yeah. better resources, yeah. no sexually transmitted diseases. Right. Lots of things that mates might want to know. Right. Okay, and that makes sense to some degree, and it probably is true to some degree. Although, okay, this is a sidetrack, but probably listeners are hearing that and saying, oh, why women prefer a square jaw because it means healthfulness. Only it doesn't. Well, you know, really, I think that most of my colleagues in evolutionary biology are like economists on the gold standard, Uh right? They believe that the value of beauty comes from the connection to some extrinsic value, like a pile of gold in Fort Knox, right? And so for them, the peacock's tail has value because it stands in lieu of other benefits. The other possibility, Darwin's original idea and 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 the broad aesthetic idea, is that the peacock's tail is like modern dollars, or Bitcoin. There's no gold. It's merely a social contrivance that uh, creates the value of beauty. And in that case, it's basically whatever's popular. It's like an irrationally exuberant market bubble in nature, but mostly of a genetic sort. Okay, so I want to go back to Wallace. I understand why in the uh, 1800s he'd have this somewhat repressive idea and wouldn't want to give females of any species agency in their choices and things like that. How does it sustain for hundreds of years? How does it sustain for a couple things, just, you know, the sexual revolution? How does it sustain for the fact that, from what I understand, one way to get tenure is to come up with new ideas (laughs) in the university? And the last thing is, it seems to me that there had to be a few examples where his theory was borne out, but so many, many examples where it didn't. How does the shift not happen until you come along and put a turkey on your cover? Is a, lot, it a, a lot of questions. Is it a turkey? So, uh, uh, Argus pheasant. <laughs> okay, fine. Wallace's gamut was really to take the parts of sexual selection that he liked and, and, and synonymize them with natural selection, say that's just a kind of natural selection, and therefore we don't need this word anymore. Sexual selection. Yeah, so yeah. sexual selection, the phrase disappeared. Yeah. When it was recreated, though, in the 1970s, or rediscovered, potentially, uh, what we mostly see is a field that's recreated in Wallace's image. Yeah. Although people call themselves Darwinians, Darwinism in the modern era was really shaped by Wallace, by Wallace's insistence on the greater efficacy of natural selection, right? So although Wallace lost the battle over uh, credit for natural selection, he won the war over what evolutionary biology would become in the 20th century, which was a field dominated by one strong idea. So the reason why this honest advertisement model of beauty has survived is because most evolutionary biologists believe, as Wallace did, that adaptation is a strong force that dominates everything in nature. It's like economics dominated by gold bugs. And so the, and the honest advertisement is that, the, uh, that anything that looks beautiful to a female bird means something else. It means objective quality. Right. right. Okay. Here's a, here's a question I don't know that you've ever considered. If Wallace and Darwin were both peacocks, who would have the more beautiful plumage? <laughs> who would be attractive maybe in the aesthetic sense more? I don't mean looking at them. I mean their writing, how compelling their arguments were, that sort of thing. 
that's the thing about beauty. You know, different strokes for different folks, uh-huh. right? Uh, evolutionary biology is dominated today by people who found Wallace's view of the world to be attractive and in some way intellectually beautiful. And for some reason, the way I've connected my sort of bird-watching roots to scientific discovery, I am it's sort of an intellectual outlier in my own discipline. Yes. So part of the, the effort of the book is to, is to change the conversation, perhaps change the minds among my colleagues, but really to recruit new people into the sciences to become part of the change that evolutionary biology vitally needs. You're an ornithologist. You study yeah. birds. And you probably have an aesthetic appreciation for birds. And a lot of people do. Right. Well, that's fascinating because birds communicate in the same sensory modalities that we do. Yes. Uh, acoustically and with color. And so it's not surprised that we relate to them more than, say, bats or moles or electrogenic fishes that sing song, electrical songs in the Amazon and in the Congo rivers, but actually ones we, we, we can't sense. Do most of the uh, advertisements, does most of the aesthetic choices of birds make sense to you or would make sense to a human? The interesting thing about beauty is that it is both normative, right? That mm-hmm. is, choice creates some some particular thing, some particular combination of features that is preferred in some species. But over time, it's unstable. So like a spinning top, there's a force that keeps it spinning. But over time, it will skitter this way or that way or another way, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons over the tree of life, over the evolutionary history of birds, different species evolved to look differently, to decide on different ideas about beauty. Are there examples of the aesthetic choice being uh, maladaptive, like uh, the the females of the species like the way one beak looks, but it's just not as good for getting the seeds? These are birds where everybody in the population is made worse as a result of mate choice, and therefore it cannot be really an adaptive process. The great example is the club-winged mannequin, which is a bird that sings with its wings in an extraordinary way. Yeah, I love the mannequins, and to me, they reminded me of boy bands because there are five or six of them on a branch, and you got the backup singers, but then you got the one alpha male, right? And the other guys are just kind of in service to well, him. Well, that, 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 that's, that's in one special kind of What were they, of, the long-tailed species, mannequins? Yeah, the, the long-tailed and, and oh, the blue mannequins. Nice but most of them are mannequin. kind of like kind of like an outdoor music festival where you got multiple stages. Uh-huh. You can kind of see them or hear each one of them, right. but you know you, you have to go to one, and you pick one. And that, that's where most of it is. So the males are competing against each other. Each other. But yeah. in the club winged, he's singing with his wings. He's stridulating, really. His his secondary wing feathers are rubbing together and creating a ringing sound. It sounds like a sort of feedback on a tiny uh, electric guitar. Beck, beck, wang. And indeed, in order to make these sounds, he has an extraordinary odd set of wing bones. The ulna, which is the, the, the trailing uh, bone in the forewing, is thickened and solid, actually solid like ivory. This is weird because every bird on the planet has a hollow Hollow. ulna. Even T-Rex has a hollow ulna, right? It's It's a design that predates the origin of birds and the origin of flight. So clearly this guy has left behind an adaptive design for flight in order to make a wing song that females prefer. They fly. They're not flightless birds. They're not flightless, but they're pretty awkward. Tell me about, here was a phrase that I like, aesthetic remodeling. Yeah, by studying the aesthetic agency of animals, the Mm -hmm. independent capacity of choice to shape the species, we really arrived at a new idea about how choice responds to sexual coercion and sexual violence in animals. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of 
two results of that. One is a kind of sexual arms race between aggression and resistance, right, between males and females, right? And this leads to very, can lead to very costly but still very efficient means of protecting females from sexual coercion. We have a, a, a lot of research on, on the fascinating topic of duck sex mm-hmm. uh, that, that implies something deeply important, which is that freedom of choice matters to animals, Right, that sexual autonomy is not just a political theory invented by suffragettes and feminists, but actually an evolved feature of the social sexual lives of animals. Right? And what's the bird that, depending on uh, the the female calls the male, but then can reject him, depending on uh, how he how he enters a like from the front or the yeah, back? Yeah, yeah. So in contrast to uh, the sort of sexual arms race that goes on in ducks, yeah. there's another way that choice can respond to violence and coercion, and that is to evolve preferences for aspects of males that actually protect one from sexual coercion and violence. And one of the greatest examples are the bowerbirds. In bowerbirds, the female does all the nesting, and she chooses among her available males. But the males build these what they're called bowers. They're not a nest, but a kind of seduction theater. It's, a, it's an architectural construction of sticks ornamented with all sorts of different found objects depending on the species. So the architecture of the bower is clearly aesthetic. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's ornamented with blue stuff in one species and f- red flowers in another or fossil shells in a third, right? But the architecture of the bower also has another function. In one case, there's an avenue bower, a little sort of hallway where the female sits in the middle and the male displays in the front. But if the male wants to copulate, he has to go back around the back and the female is actually protected by these sidewalls. It gives her an opportunity to pop out the front. Mm -hmm. So although the (laughs) bower is beautiful by any measure, it's also highly functional. It protects the female from sexual coercion or essentially from date rape. She can get intimately close to that male and decide if she likes him and his stuff and always maintain her freedom to make it out the front door. So they evolved to... They evolved. So females selected those males who made the varieties of bowers that provided them with the most freedom of choice. All right, so that's what the bower bird does. That's what the duck does. What does the person do? (laughs) Well, interestingly... In order to understand human sexual evolution, we have to go back to our common ancestry with chimpanzees and apes. The challenges for chimpanzees and apes are that every female sexuality is basically dominated by uh, one or a few guys, right? Yeah. And, and uh, there's also a problem with uh, the fact that when there's uh, social instability, one of the logical ways in which a male, a new male, can advance his own fitness is by going around and murdering all the babies. Mm-hmm. Because by doing so, the females will go back into estrus and become reproductive again, giving him an opportunity to capitalize on his new social dominance. So in gorillas, for example, infanticide by males is the single largest source of infant mortality. That's huge. And so human males do a lot of horrible things. We're responsible for most of the horribleness in the world, in fact. But they don't murder babies for their own sexual advantage. That's true. Ever. This is a big deal because everything about humanness requires greater investment in babies. Longer childhoods, longer developing brains, more materials, et cetera, et cetera, right? And in uh, fact, not only do we not murder babies, lots of human males I know like their babies. Right, exactly. So how do you get there? You know, your average male ape is like a, a homicidal maniac waiting for his opportunity. And so what I propose in the book 
is that human and male pro-social qualities actually evolve through female choice, through aesthetic remodeling. That is, females selecting on those males who got along. One of the prominent So, so features, the old idea is the female will choose the male who can protect, but your idea is the female might do a little of that, but will choose the male who has shown an ability to get along, i.e. will not murder. Right. Yeah. And, and, and all we have to do is look at the human smile to see the biggest impact of this, right? Male chimpanzees and apes, gorillas and apes, have deadly weapons in their faces that females lack. Mm-hmm. That is the canine teeth. And the question is, how do you get a male to give up his weapons? Well, that's a politically potent question in America today, right? right. But the answer in terms of our evolutionary history is that you make them unsexy, right? By preferring males whose weapons are not as large, uh, you end up with maleness in general that furthers female autonomy. So I think that humans got here because females selected on ancestral mates in ways that advanced our our sociable qualities. Maybe this is the solution to gun control, a version, a modern version of, what was it, the Greek play, Lestrada, where... Lysistrata, that's that's exactly the name of the chapter. (laughs) They withhold their sexual favors for anyone who owns an AR-15. Just throwing it out there. Maybe that could work. That's uh, exactly what our evolutionary history would indicate. Interesting. Richard O. Prum is the author of The Evolution of Beauty. He is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Yale. Thank you, Professor Prum. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. Mind like a steel trap. That's one of those phrases like, eat this, it'll put hair on your chest, or meat that just falls off the bone, which is meant to be a compliment, laudatory, to to bestow virtue upon the thing you're talking about, yet it contains such harrowing visual imagery. It's pretty off-putting, isn't it? Mind like a steel trap. But I think Rudy Giuliani really has a mind like a steel trap because it's rusty and dominated by teeth. Also, like some steel traps, often unhinged. I just want to play you a couple highlights from his Meet the Press interview. In the memo, though, if he isn't going to do it, was it <coughs> that's one. I want to talk about pardons in general. That's another. And then he said this to Chuck Todd. Well, it's nice to be with you, Todd. How are you? And then, as a steel trap might, he catches himself and corrects it to um, Chris. By, it's okay. <laughs> Let me start. No, not Chris and not Todd. But yes, a throat clear and yes, a a kind of reaching and grasping legal theory that the president can pardon himself, cannot obstruct justice, and can't ever be charged with a crime. Those were all positions that he was pressed into defending when it was revealed that the president's old lawyer, John Dowd, along with his still lawyer, Jay Sekulow, asserted that the president can pardon himself for any reason, cannot obstruct justice since he is justice and can't be indicted for a crime. Now, when I saw Rudy making this claim on different Sunday shows, I immediately thought, well, what if, what if the president strangled a mailman? And I thought of strangling a mailman because I figured if I just asked, well, what if the president murdered a guy, then Giuliani, sharp lawyer, steel trap, would say, well, you know, that's not a federal crime we're talking about here. So if my hypothetical was, well, what if he strangled a mailman, that would take care of that objection. Also, strangling the mailman, that is slang for a venal sin. Plus, you can really see Trump strangling a mailman for giving Amazon a sweetheart deal. Plausible. But neither George, nor Chuck, nor Todd, nor Chris brought up the strangling a mailman possibility. 
but the Huffington Post did. Let me quote from them. Uh, They were interviewing Giuliani in the extreme hypothetical case of Trump having shot former FBI director James Comey to end the Russia investigation rather than just firing him. Giuliani said, quote, if he shot James Comey, he'd be impeached the next day, impeach him, and then you could do whatever you want to do to him. So that answer to that question uh, transformed this morning on Morning Joe when Morning Joe said this. Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani told the Huffington Post that Trump could have shot James Comey and not be indicted so for Then, three minutes later... That could sexually abuse their children and not be indicted for that? Could and then, six minutes after that... Could assassinate an FBI director. Well, look, Giuliani actually didn't say that. At the risk of defending the Dowd Sekulow memo... What Giuliani was actually trying to do, and he was trying to walk it back, and I think Giuliani was treated a little unfairly, I'm going to say it. I came to this conclusion, having recently read a compelling account, I thought, of something Hillary Clinton said that took on a life of its own. So I was reading uh, this account of why newsmakers resent the media, and this was the example that was used. Hillary Clinton was getting an award at Radcliffe, and a moderator for the event, Maura Healy, asked a question. Clinton answered. Here's that exchange. If you could be a CEO of any company right now, What would you choose and why? Facebook. (laughs) Hillary didn't put it out there. Hey, I'm thinking of running Facebook. I'd like to take over Facebook. She was asked and gave a reasonable answer. Here were the headlines. Hillary Clinton's other dream job? To run Facebook. That was in the Washington Post. Newsweek headline. Hillary Clinton wants to be the CEO of Facebook, Axios. Hillary Clinton wants to be the CEO of Facebook. I don't know that she wants to be the CEO or president of Facebook or any company. She didn't come up with the idea. She just answered the question. Like Giuliani didn't come up with the idea of, hey, I want everyone to know that the president can kill a guy or assassinate Comey. All Giuliani was saying is that the president is unindictable. And if he's unindictable, he's unindictable. And the logical extension of the president being unindictable is you can't indict him for killing a mailman or Comey or going on a murder spree consisting of Comey, a mailman, Rosie O'Donnell, if she's in a national park, and maybe taking out a family of endangered condors in their nests. This is not actually an argument he's assertively making. It's an argument he's half-heartedly defending, really just answering questions about. Do you know who else thinks the government can indict Comey? Robert Mueller. That's probably true. Guy keeps it close to his vest. But there is every indication that he thinks this is true. Those are the guidelines of the Justice Department. So let's let's calm down. But let's not calm down over the question of if President Trump sold out our democracy. I'm not saying that. And let's certainly not calm down and just say it's clear and settled that the president can't be indicted because Supreme Court's never weighed in on that. But let us slow our collective role or our collective morning Joe about coming up with more and more egregious crimes that the president can't be indicted for, as it is very likely the case that the president can't be indicted. So you're saying the president can bitch slap a park ranger and take a dump in Old Faithful. Yes, I suppose I'm saying that. So you're saying that the president can dynamite Mount Rushmore, personally press the plunger, Wile E. Coyote style. Well, I suppose there's a lot. So you're saying the president can dry hump the Statue of Liberty on Facebook Live while reading out state secrets without being charged with a crime. Well, I mean, with uh, Lady Liberty, dry humping is really the only kind of humping. Yes, yes, yes. 
That's the theory. Like diplomatic immunity extends to the crimes diplomats commit, be they parking tickets or murder, just like the rule of double jeopardy applies even to O.J. Simpson. Yes, the legal theory of can't indict a president means can't indict a president. So Rudy Giuliani is saying that the president can shoot a guy on Fifth Avenue and get away with it like he always predicted he could. Yes, and then the prophecies will be fulfilled and the people with MAGA hats will be raptured up to heaven and Old Faithful can finally go on that two-week cleanse it's been dreaming of. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname, whose ancestors tended to select the mate who could make the widest array of mouth noises, or as it came to be known, beatboxing. It's still a draw. Senior producer Mary Wilson comes from a long line of women who lived under decorative branch bowers where they could lure potential suitors. Proved to be a uh, counter-effective adaptation. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, a role he is naturally suited for due to his unusually sensitive ears. Steve, are my peas popping? Thanks to our Slate Plus members who have helped support the show. Join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash gist plus. The gist we offer to stridulate our ulnas into the microphone, but HR says that's a workplace violation. Umpru depru dupru and for listening. <laughs> Will I both both throw clears? Okay. <laughs>